This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. My favorite writing in the book is the America section because I was in such an intense emotional space because of BLM, COVID, the election, everything happening at once. And it's like people are wrestling with this now. They're reckoning with it now. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'm sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode, as we trek past the halfway mark of a very eventful 2021, many are still trying to make sense of the events of 2020. This unpacking has provided some Americans with moments of clarity regarding American exceptionalism and the authentic state of the nation. In his new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, author Ben Rhodes grapples with the dissolving notion of American exceptionalism in a post-COVID world. Using a global lens, Rhodes presents a glimpse of a highly possible democracy-free future, modeled by countries like Hungary, Russia, and China. In this talk presented by Elliott Bay Book Company, Rhodes, who was a former speechwriter for Barack Obama, examines the post-Cold War era and the critical ideological shifts that took place. Shifts such as the global embrace of unbridled capitalism, nationalism, a mania for tech, surveillance, and social media. From chats with protesters in Hong Kong and the U.S. to various government officials around the globe, Rhodes presents a blueprint of the continued rise of nationalism in the U.S. and just how Americans should prepare. Rhodes was joined in conversation by fellow author and playwright Ayad Akhtar. Together they discuss the global need for America to get democracy back on track, but also prove why it's worth saving. Ben Rhodes is a political commentator and former Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speechwriting. He is the author of The World As It Is and co-host of the foreign policy podcast, Pod Save the World. This virtual talk was presented by Elliott Bay Book Company on June 1st. Please note, this talk does contain language of an adult nature. Hi, Ben. Yeah, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Um, so I'm, I'm really... I'm really delighted to to be here. I, I, you know, you and I have been in in close contact this past year because we've been, you know, cooking up some stuff together, which we're still figuring out. But it puts us in touch with each other. And 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 you know, I read it an an early version of this book uh, late last year, I think it was, uh, and was was blown away by it. Um, so beautifully beautifully written, but but even more importantly, um, mind expanding and and really changed my conception my understanding of the world as speaking to you generally tends to do. Uh, I don't think I've ever spent uh, as much time with somebody who, who really does every day that I speak with them changes my way of seeing things. So I'm really excited to, to be in conversation with you. And I want to start out with um, a question about, uh, you know, you're out of the Oval Office. Um, you have written a book about your experience. Um, and now what? Now, now you're, 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 what are you doing and what leads you to, to write another book and to write this book? I mean, what's that journey? So, uh, first of all, thanks uh, so much uh, for doing this, Ayad, and, um, you know, for Elliot Bay hosting us. Um, I, I, I was struck by what a great community of readers um, is in Seattle last time. 
um, I've traveled there. And, um, you know, I, to some extent, this book is a bit about power, right? Um, and, you know, I was spit out, I was, you know, 31 years old when I went into the White House. Um, I was a kid, you know, when I look back on it, right? And I was 39 when I was kind of spit out in the back end of that with Donald Trump in office. And so I think it was already going to be disorienting to leave a position of some power and influence in the world where you feel connected to global events. And then to have Donald Trump, you kind of your opposite, replace you and kind of be dismantling everything you worked on. And like everybody else, I'm waking up every morning and checking my Twitter feed and and seeing, you know, something I worked on that he's taking apart and seeing my whole concept of what that place is the white house and what that office is the presidency being kind of dismantled um you know that 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 is something i was beginning to digest and then i i wrote my book so that was kind of a very you know it was was a in a way like a fairly rushed effort to just kind of get out of my head this experience i'd had and at the same time though i had started to travel a lot and uh, there are a couple of episodes that really led to this book. Uh, one is in the spring of 2017, I was traveling with former President Obama. Uh, I was working for him kind of at the time because I didn't quite know what else to do with myself. And I was in um, I was in Germany and a woman named Jana Nemsova, who becomes a character in this book, came to see me. She drove several hours to just meet with me. And um, she wanted to basically tell me her story. I mean, that's why she came to see me. Her father was Boris Nemtsov. He was the leading opponent of Vladimir Putin for many years. And he was assassinated outside the Kremlin uh, in 2014. And she kind of exiled herself from Russia and, and wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to her father. But, you know, really, I just had a sense that she came all that way to see me just to tell me her story. And I was struck at first by how powerless I felt. You know, like if I, I used to be able to at least try to do something about this. But here I am, I'm just a guy listening to this fascinating woman, um, courageous woman, tell me her story. And it, it kind of planted a seed in my head of well, what an interesting, I hesitate to use the word opportunity because uh, of how terrible the situation was she faced, but to, to have been in power and then to meet somebody who kind of lived these events that I kind of reacted to in the White House. And, and that kind of stuck in my head. And then as I kind of am going through the release of my own book, and I'm trying to make sense of why is democracy so imperiled in the United States, and why is that so evidently the case around the world? On a separate trip, I was in Germany, I met with a young Hungarian named Shandor Lederer, who also became a character in in this book. And I said to him, I said, Shandor, what happened? How did uh, Hungary go from being a democracy to an autocracy, basically, in a decade? And he said, well, Ben, that's easy. Um, Viktor Orban, our prime minister, got elected on a right-wing backlash to the financial crisis in 2008. And then he packed the courts with right-wing judges. He redrew the parliamentary districts in Hungary to favor his political party. He changed the voting laws to make it easier for his supporters to vote. He enriched his cronies on the outside, who then financed his politics and also bought up the media and turned it into kind of a right-wing propaganda machinery. Uh, and he wrapped this whole project up in a nationalist bow that was an us versus them politics where the us were the real Hungarians and the them were immigrants, Muslims, George Soros, liberal elites, and <laughs> thinking, you know, well, that's my lived experience in America. And th- th- those two ideas of Jana and Shandor 
I, I realized, well, maybe the way to figure out what's happening in my country and around the world is to just go find people like this um, and, and, and have them tell me their stories. Um, and, and I didn't know where this book was going to lead when I started that journey. I just knew that was going to be the basic idea that I was going to I was going to inhabit the experiences of people in places that were living the same kind of nationalism and authoritarianism that we were. Was it clear to you from the outset of Trump's advent to to the highest office in the land that that we were on a path that was dismantling, if you will, democracy? Or was it was that clear to you from the from the get go? Crystal clear, Ayad. And and you know I, you know, and and here's why. You know I. I lived it in the White House in two ways. One is the kind of radicalization of the Republican Party that took place in those eight years. I obviously lived uh, in the sense that kind of uniform opposition to Obama, but the kind of virulence of it and the meanness of it. Um, but then also I became kind of a character in some right wing conspiracy theories, you know. And so I, I started pulling the thread on that in kind of 2013, 14, going online figuring out what, why it was that I was getting so much hatred directed at me and death threats and things like this. And, and I suddenly kind of entered into the, the world of conspiracy theory and, and just virulent nationalism. And, and, and it, Fox was the, the soft version of this. I mean, you, you know, so I, and Trump came out of that ecosystem. He's a product of it. And so I knew that this was not an ordinary case of a Republican winning or even like a, right-wing Republican winning. This was something different. Um, and I'd also kind of experienced the way in which the Russian disinformation machinery and nationalist machinery kind of blended into what was happening on the American right. And I write in the book, you know, when I got out of government, I was, I was kind of shocked in Washington. You know, I was starting to kind of tweet and, you know, pop off. And, and I was taken out um, to drink some lunch and coffees by, you know, not just by, by Democrats, um, you know, and journalists like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're going to make yourself seem less serious if you're this kind of angry and, um, you know, uh, you should be self-critical because that's how you get kind of credibility in this business, you know, and, and I'm like, do you not see that? <laughs> like, I'm more than happy to be self-critical, and I am in this book of a lot of things about the Obama years. But like, did how do you not see that this is existential? You know, and and that this isn't just happening in America. This is happening in places like Hungary and Russia and China, which I picked. But also, I could have picked Turkey. I could have picked India. I could have picked Brazil. I could have picked and the Philippines. I could have picked any number of places. I and so I was I was really struck and, and consistently by why that wasn't evident to people. And, and that's another reason I wanted to write this book is to show people, hey, the, the, the fact that this is a global phenomenon makes it, I think, more concerning. You know, that this isn't just kind of like we had some crazy reality show guy come along and become president. Like, you know, what's happening here is very connected to what's happening everywhere. And that actually makes it much more serious in, in my view. It would... It's interesting to me. I mean, I want to get to the book, but before we do, um, because I want to get to, yeah, you have a lot of different encounters and, and out of those different encounters, you sort of distill basically three locations that you reflect on China, Russia, and, and Hungary. And, and, and there's lots of far reaching sort of thoughts about what these places represent and what, I mean, in many ways, 
one of the things I think you've done with this book is not just written an anatomy of our recent past or our present, but you've written a book about the future. I think you're, you're, you're writing a book that's showing us what the future may look like, is likely going to look like, and that we should be prepared. And you're sort of talking about how America participates in that. But before we get there, you know, there's an interesting idea in our conversations over the past year. Um, I've come to understand a little bit better uh, the transition from a, a, a global order that was maybe beginning to sort of come apart at the end of the Obama era and that is now fully informed, one that's driven by, by money and one that is, um, it's almost like an organized crime model of global politics. And I wonder if you could just talk briefly about that, because I think it's an important backdrop to some of the ideas that you that you talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, and, and in some ways, I think it had come apart. Um, and, and I really want to go out of my way to say, like, I, I'm not saying this to excuse us, because I, I, if you read the book, you'll find that okay, you know, I really interrogate the Obama years. But I think it had come apart. We'll get, we'll uh, get to that part. So don't you? Don't, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I think it had come apart with the financial crisis. Um, but the, the, you know, a few months before we step in there in the sense of, you know, here's, here's how I describe it. Um, the, there's a guy I have a conversation with in the book who, who works in finance, right? He's a hedge fund guy and, uh, or works for a large investment company. Um, and, um, you know, he referred, he, he referred to the elongated reason cycle, um, basically the World War II was such a shocking event that the, the, the scale of destruction and then the, the depths of the Holocaust kind of just shocked the world into creating some guardrails around human behavior. You know, that we're going to uh, set up an international system of institutions and norms. Um, we're going to kind of have a new set of international laws. And America is the Cold War, yes, a capitalist society with a kind of profit motive behind that. But there was, you know, there was this kind of anchor of the Cold War, right, that um, dis- I mean, put it this way, uh, in shorthand, Trump never could have become president during the Cold War. You know, like there was this idea that like, you know, we we're, were kind of responsible for averting nuclear war, <laughs> World War Three. We imperfectly, you know, are supposed to stand for these democratic values that are the contrast that we draw with the Soviet Union. And so for all the excesses and flaws in American society and global politics, there was some kind of disciplining factor. Um, and then I think that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and this, the book ends up being about kind of this 30-year period since the fall of the Berlin Wall and where that's leading us, it was like, you know, just the floodgates open. And there's just the way in which the floodgates open was globalization. And what globalization was, was the spread of, of markets and the kind of unregulated brand of capitalism that washed over places like Hungary and Russia and China. They were on the other side of the Berlin Wall. And uh, that, I mean, to your question, I mean, that created a number of different challenges. Um, the first is in a place like Russia, where you, the state owned everything. When that happened, they auctioned off the state, um, and this, this, these, all these assets—national oil companies, national telecommunications companies, national media properties—are just transferred over to a handful of billionaires who we now call oligarchs, um, and in the most corrupt manner possible. 
and politics becomes this kind of game instead of it being about communism it's about like who controls all this wealth and and what can they do with the power that accompanies that wealth and then in china you have the chinese communist party seeing this as an existential threat and saying well how can we kind of open up the floodgates to capitalism here so that we can generate a lot of wealth and then hold on to power you know at the same time in the west you have inequality exploding and to the point that when the financial crisis happens and the bottom falls out everybody sees well wait a second like this is not a good deal you know like there's some people getting very rich like some of us are getting yeah maybe our standards of living are improving but feels harder and harder to get by um and this whole system feels rigged um and that's what orban tapped into and we can get into this and what that basically gets to is a situation where when it's stopping about ideology um it really kind of just became about money you know and who um who controlled it and what narratives they needed to use and what what kind of systems they had to construct to just preserve their capacity to to control wealth um i mean that's the case in each of the countries that that i look at in this book and and to some extent that's the case in the united states and um i don't mean that as it's not like a marxist critic critique it's just it's the reality right where in this kind of post end of history world after the end of the cold war and in this kind of post ideological world things became more and more just about uh who controls resources you know and that that opened up strangely uh a very virulent space for for nationalism um in ways that i didn't fully appreciate till i wrote this book well, it's in the example that that I think you used uh, very succinctly to, to convey it to me was that there used to be a time when you couldn't just deposit $10 million into a foreign minister's bank account in order to get your way on policy level with another country. Yeah. But yeah, now, so, yeah. now we're living in a world where that's, where that's all somebody has to do in order to have some sort of a policy game. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, just to, again, predates the book, but like when I was in government, you know, Obama and I would go to, to bilateral meetings, you know, in different countries and say Asia, right? And there'd be 10 people sitting on the other side of the table. And we'd kind of joke darkly to each other after the meeting, like how many people are the Chinese paying who's sitting in that room? And, and we would literally have to, to narrow the meeting. You have the one meeting with everybody in the room and then you'd have to kick everybody out and have Obama do a one-on-one with maybe one other person in the room because you didn't want those years in the room. And, and the Russians did the same thing in all manner of places. Um, you know, the powers for sale um, in the world today in ways that I think, what's interesting about that is that like the people in, and I, I always get myself in trouble for being critical of Washington, but you know, people in Washington think tanks are not processing that. Ordinary people get it, like instinctively, right? So in a strange way, and this is kind of, again, we'll get to this, but this is what an Orban, for instance, tapped into. Like ordinary people, I think, get that this is all kind of rigged against them in a manner that people who are formulating policy and white papers, you right. know, act like that's not the case, that this is still all on the level, you know? So that's the backdrop against, that's the world that you step into um, as you start encountering people, you start talking you know, Navalny and folks, Shandor yeah. in Hungary and folks in Hong Kong. And those are the three places that you settle on. And you begin to see some connections. You begin to see how, um, what the fates of these particular 
countries and cultures and, and their fates under this sort of new authoritarianism that's rising, they all kind of track back to the United States in some interesting way. And before, before we get to that, if you could just talk a little bit about Hungary, I'm particularly fascinated by Hungary. And I think it's something folks don't quite understand as much. When you're in Hungary, you learn so much about Viktor Orban. Can you tell us a little bit about him and a little bit about the context uh, of what's happened in Hungary? Well, and, and first of all, I, I want to I love that you mentioned Chandor Lederer, one of my characters in Hungary, and then Alexei Navalny, obviously far more prominent in Russia. Because what was so struck by is they had the exact same political awakening. It was real estate and it was their neighborhood. So Chandor took me for a walk in his Budapest neighborhood. And, and this is a guy who's an anti-corruption activist. And he's, uh, he got involved in politics um, in kind of the early 2000s because the neighborhood that he loved was being destroyed. Like they were knocking down the old buildings and putting up these kind of humorless, characterless you know, apartment blocks. And when he looked into it, what he found is it was all corruption. It was basically like, you know, the developers paying off the politicians, um, you know, kicking people out of their homes. Uh, and, and it was kind of this, the hungry thought that democracy was going to bring, you know, uh, something different than that. And then when I talked to Alexei Navalny, who's obviously become the most prominent opposition to Putin, he had the exact same, you know, he started out in the, in the early 2000s in Moscow. And same thing. Like they, they were kicking people out of their homes, putting up high rises. Everybody was on the take. Um, and, and this was like the, the letdown and talk in these people's voices. And this is where it starts to tie back to America of like, we were all, you know, what, what they both said, you know, we were so excited when the Berlin wall came down, we thought this is going to be great, you know, in a way, well, Navalny's a little more complicated, but it, we thought things were going to get better. And they did in some ways, but then what is this? This is just, this is just corruption. This is just the same version of the same system we thought we'd gotten rid of where a few people kind of call the shots, you know? And, um, and, 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 and so I thought I was going to set out to write this book, you know, so I focused on Hungary because it was kind of at the vanguard of, it's not just Hungary. Hungary is kind of the laboratory, the vanguard of a certain kind of nationalism and authoritarianism that is, I think, you know, like I alluded earlier, it's the same playbook that the Republican Party has run here. It, it's some of the same themes that led to Brexit, it, it, this kind of right-wing nationalism. Um, but when I looked at it more, more kind of carefully, you know, I thought I was just going to learn about how Viktor Orban did this. And, and what I began to see is, like, our fingerprints are on this, you know, that, the, that, that after 1990, the Hungarian experience of, of democracy was at first freedom, but then it became very quickly corruption. And it became the sense of encroachment on identity itself. What does it mean to be Hungarian? They never settled that question. And, and, and what it really became about was, you know, uh, we're living in a society that is freer, but that doesn't seem fair. And then when the bottom fell out after the financial crisis in 2008, um, Orban basically offers the oldest story in the book, which is blood and soil nationalism. You know, you've been screwed, Hungarians, by, and it's interesting for a, a right-wing guy, essentially, multinational corporations, immigrants, George Soros, like every force that had encroached on Hungary since the fall of the Berlin Wall, he made the other. And he's like, the solution to this is not kind of left-wing populism that tries to redistribute wealth. It's right-wing populism. It says, 
well, at least I'm going to give voice to your grievances and I'm going to stand up to these people and join my team. And, and my team, again, is the real Hungarians that are rooted in traditional values. And, and basically anything that I can cast as foreign is the other. And, you know, that's the same playbook in a, in a way that, that Putin had already run in Russia and that ended up getting run here in the United States. And so Hungary becomes this kind of laboratory for the failure of um, globalization to deliver on its promise. Um, globalization yeah. as defined really as globalization as predatory capitalism. Yeah. And yeah. which, which, which married perhaps to local traditions of corruption, but nevertheless at its root is about the exploitation of assets and people by those in power, which is of course something that you suggest in the book, I think quite brilliantly, is really the American model. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a hungry point and then a, I'll give, go to China. You know, Shandor told me and, and others who I talked to in Hungary um, about what was one of the things that was disorienting is when things opened up in the 90s, uh, in the early 2000s, there are all these un, unresolved issues about Hungary's history. There were like these underground rivers. You know, some people had collaborated with the Nazis in the Holocaust. Some people had collaborated with the communists. This kind of left-right divide in the society had never been resolved, and then you just have this kind of onslaught of the kind of predatory capitalism that you're describing, overlaying that. Um, and what Orban did is he reached down into one of those rivers and he picked one. He picked the nationalist one and said, "This is our identity. You know, this is the this is the solid ground that I'm going to stand on." to make sense of, um, of, of how we need to re- respond to this. And, and Orban gave a speech that I, I, I thought was very important. I quote in the book uh, where he said, there were three great regime changes in the 20th century, uh, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, where everybody knew that the world was totally different the next day, that those things were over, and that the financial crisis was one of those. Um, and, and what he was going to do in response to it was pursue, quote unquote, illiberal democracy. Um, and that's him tapping in, tapping a vein of, of Hungarian history and making a choice. That's the old model. That's like the blood and soil nationalism. China's the future. Um, and to me, where this hit me like a ton of bricks, Ayad, is, and where I kind of settled around this thesis that America helped shape this world. Um, I was in Shanghai and I tell the story. I was in my hotel and I got w- woken up in the middle of the night. Um, it's like 10 o'clock and jet lag sleeping. And the Chinese government has some officials who want to meet with me, which is bizarre because I'm not in government anymore. I had not had any interaction with the Chinese government. I was there with Obama who was giving speeches and stuff and doing some meetings. And they come in my room and they warn me that he should not meet the Dalai Lama on his upcoming trip to India. And beyond the unsettling fact of meeting with these guys in my hotel room at like 10 o'clock at night, we had not a, announced a meeting with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> So, so they're basically letting me know, like, we're, we're in somebody's email. We're in your email, the Dalai Lama's person's email, or both, probably. So I'm kind of disoriented already. Um, and then I walk outside. And Shanghai, I don't know if you've been there, but, like, the, the bun, the, the centerpiece of the Shanghai skyline looks like the future. It's like, you know, Blade Runner. It's like gorgeous buildings, lights everywhere, huge glass towers, the lights reflecting off the river. The, the scene is of people taking selfies with that in the backdrop and you're looking at this and you're like, wow, all this wealth that they've created 
um, all these people that they've lifted out of poverty, but I'm also haunted by the, and they're in all of our phones, you know, they're, there's a totalitarian kind of surveillance aspect to it. It looks familiar, but something's off. And I realized that if you take the logic of the last 30 years of American hegemony in the world, and you stripped all the democratic values out, right? So you kept the capitalism and you kept the technology mania and you kept the national security obsession that we've had since 9-11, and you just took out democracy, that Chinese model is the very logical next step of where this is going. Like we created this, we, we helped build that Shanghai experience I had. Um, and, and, you know, that, that to me was um, the light bulb going off of like, well, this is the future unless we decide to care more about the democracy part. You know, can any of us honestly say that, in American policy and in American society, we've cared as much about democracy as making money and developing new technologies and our national security. I don't think so. And, and, and so I think that's, that's, that's where we are. I mean, it's, it's interesting what you, on the one hand, what you seem to be saying is, and you, you wrestle with this, this in the book beautifully. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful personal quality to what you do, this journey that you take. Um, it's very reflective and it's also in dialogue with individuals and the ideas emerge from these encounters, from these dramatic encounters with people and these stories that you tell. Um, but one of the big struggles of the book is on the one hand, struggling with the legacy of American exceptionalism, but on the other hand, recognizing there needs to be some form of American exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. problem, the problem with what's happening in the world is that all of these things in a way do kind of come from the American model, but they don't have any of the American, so-called American exceptional values at the core. We ourselves have abandoned the values that made us in some way exceptional at some point, you know, under, admittedly, problematically in many cases, but there was still something girding us beyond self-enrichment. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the two things I'd say, like, Ayad, first that I found a lot of hope in these people, you know, the, the Hungarian activists who are in the democratic opposition, the people like Alexei Navalny and John Enemsov in Russia. And then I spent a lot of time with kind of Hong Kong protesters and younger people in Hong Kong um, and some Chinese kind of dissident types who washed up in Hong Kong because um, you can't really be an opponent to the Chinese Communist Party in China anymore. And I found a lot of hope in them in the, because, you know, when you meet like-minded people who care about these things and are willing to make sacrifices for them, you realize that, you know, most people don't want, I believe that most people don't want to live like that. They don't want to live in a world in which they can't think for themselves, in which power is so con concentrated in, in certain people's hands, in which nationalism is kind of weaponized to, to keep people distracted from what, what's really going on. Um, and, and I also found that they had, you know, they were innovating, you know, Navalny's innovated in his anti-corruption, the Hong Kong protesters have innovated. But like, what they kept telling me is that the most th important thing America needs to do is going to get its act together. It's like not our foreign policy. It's like, what example are we setting? Like, you know, um, we, we, we're supposed to be the country that figured this out. You know, we're supposed to be the country that figured out how to have an identity that was multiracial and multi-ethnic and uh, democratic. Um, and, 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 and Trump was one of the reasons it was such a tragedy is that basically it, it upended the idea that America had, 
everybody knew we didn't live up to that identity, particularly people in other countries, but they at least thought that that was like the organizing principle for us. And for me, what was really interesting is, and I hear I'll credit you, Ayad, like I, we started talking a lot around the time the book is structured where I kind of make a journey. It starts in Hungary, which is kind of at the vanguard of this um, trend, then goes to Russia, which was kind of the root of what came to Hungary. Then it goes to China, which is the country that never tried to even pretend like they're a democracy and is the future. And then I end on and spend the most time on America. And I was thinking of whether to have a, a you know, I have a few characters in each section. And I was like, oh, who are my American characters going to be? Um, and I read Homeland Elegies, your, your book, um, it, which is phenomenal. People should check it out. They haven't, which is your, or your fictionalized, well, no, it's a novel, it's, but it, it's about somebody, you know, trying to wrestle with this question of what it means to be an American. And I was like, you know what? I'm the American character. I, I'm the character. I'm just going to do this through my experience. And what I, what I had to wrestle with is that because I came of age, probably because I'm like a white guy, but also because I came of age, um, you know, became politically conscious kind of at the end of the Cold War, I kind of thought that we figured this out. Like I just assumed, you know, on some level that history was moving in a certain direction that, you know, the good guys win, that um, America makes mistakes, but then figures out how to write them. And I had to unlearn that, you know, Um, I mean, Trump, you know, obviously, like helped me do that. Um, we're just we're 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 in history too. We're not outside of history, and um, we've had the same battle our whole history. But, you know, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal had slaves, right? Like we we've never had this right. But like I I'm not going all the way, and I say in the book it's not the the kind of leftism that suggests that America is just the problem and needs to absent itself from these things. Well, then, then the whole field is left open to Putin and Xi Jinping. And that's not what I want either. I think the capacity to demonstrate that multiracial, multiethnic democracy can work and the capacity to kind of infuse who we are in the world with that identity is really one of the only hopes that we have right now. And that's not me saying that as an American. That's what you will hear from Hong Kong protesters and Russian oppositionists and Hungarian Democrats. They want us to be... They know as well as anybody that we have not lived up to that, particularly in recent history, in the last few years, but they want us desperately to be that. Well, so what's in the way? And it seems to me that what's in the way, at least, I mean, in this book, the financial crisis looms so large, 2008 looms so large. I mean, in a way, even larger than 9-11, which was, of course, the, the so much of what unfolded on a national security level with the Obama administration, with so many of the decisions that you were a part of, centered around, you know, the aftermath of 9-11. But in fact, it's the financial crisis in 2008 that has actually created this world. And it seems to be the the event that is still affecting our national experience on a subconscious level. And I sort of wonder, as an addendum to you commenting on that, a question, do you foresee, you know, I, I think that the economic ramifications of what we've just been through over the last year are going to dwarf what happened. I mean, they're going to dwarf the, the, the 2008, the, the consequence of the 2008 crisis. What, what can we expect from what we've just been through? Well, you know, first of all, just to, to I shorthand the financial crisis because I was sitting in Hong Kong and I actually talked to, to a Hong Kong government official, um, and, you know, anonymously, <laughs> obviously. 
And I kind of told him, I am working on this book about the rise of nationalism and authoritarianism in the world. What do you think? And he said, well, it all starts with the financial crisis in 2008. That's the moment in the West when everybody realized that American-led globalization is broken um, and discredited, and that created the opening for the nationalists. And that's the moment in China where the Chinese Communist Party that had kind of deferred to America to kind of run things in the international financial system, international markets, that's when the Chinese were like, well, maybe these people don't know what they're doing, and maybe we can start flexing our muscles more. And he said that's when China started, they started feeling a heavier hand in Hong Kong, because it was like, wait, well, why should we, why should we, you know, constrain ourselves based on what the Americans think about anything? Um, that distilled the whole thesis to me, <laughs> you know, um, and yeah. uh, uh, the, at least the financial crisis part of it. Um, and, you know, so what, what do we do about it? And what does COVID have to do with it? And, and, I, and when I look at the Obama years, I, I am very, you know, blunt about clearly the failure there was when the patient was dying after the financial crisis, we saved the patient by pumping blood into it, you know, money, trillions of dollars into banks. And, and, and by the way, some of this is not Obama policies himself. It's the Fed, you know, just pumping money to kind of keep this patient alive. System. It's um, the system. I mean, nobody the system. Can, yeah. yeah. Can't change. It, it can't, didn't change the system. And, and I could argue, you know, if we tried to let the patient die, it's not like Barack Obama would have been reelected, you know, like, so like, these are hard things. Right. But, but I think that the reality is a bunch of people who already felt left behind in this economy and were angry. Um, you know, the, the, the combination of that sense of grievance with a black president was just like, that's the tea party. Boom. Like that was like an, that was like an ignition on gasoline. Like the whole thing is rigged. The bottom's falling out. These people are bailed out and the president's black. And then suddenly you have people in the streets chanting, take our country back. And suddenly you have Donald Trump getting traction. Like, to me, that's the whole thing. That's what happened. Uh, and, and basically, I don't even really know if we could have done anything to prevent that because, you know, the Tea Party started in like the third month of the Obama years. You know, the, so um, now uh, here's what I think is different. Um, you know, the, we have a second chance here in America. Um, one of the Russians I talked to, Penn, uh, uh, hooked me up with her, Maria Stepanova, a wonderful writer. She referred to kind of COVID as like this, you know, she'd been worried that all this nationalism lead to conflict. And she's like, COVID is of something of that scale in terms of disruption. But may, and, it, and obviously, you know, in terms of death, uh, horrific, although not on the scale of what like a war would be. And she's like, this may wake people up that this isn't working, you know. Um, and I think here you can argue that like, Trump probably would have been reelected absent COVID. Um, and so COVID itself, the, and I wrote this last, and my favorite writing in the book is the America section because I was in such an intense emotional space because of BLM, COVID, the election, everything happening at once. And it's like, it's all right in front of us in a way that it wasn't even after 2008. Like people are wrestling with this now. They're reckoning with it now. Like they're reckoning with the inequality. They're reckoning with the failures of the post 9-11 national security state. They're reckoning with the destruction of social media um, and its impact on society. Like this is right. It's all out in the open. And, and I'm so glad this book came out now. And just like kind of like your book, it's like, 
because people need to be writing and thinking about this. Like, this is it. Like, it's right in front of us. We have a chance here to, to maybe not fix everything, but to at least begin to address the inequality um, that is baked into the system, the corruption that is kind of the lifeblood of not just what happens here, but around the world, the, the complete obscenity of profit-driven algorithms on Facebook sorting this country into tribes and radicalizing one of them to, to commit an insurrection at the Capitol. Like this is all we, we can't say we don't, we weren't warned. We can't say we can't see it for what it is. Um, and I, so I do think there's an opportunity that, that we probably didn't fully have in the Obama years when this wasn't quite as uh, you could argue. And I think rightly that we, we could have seen the picture, but it, in the society at large, it wasn't as ripe as it is now, you know? And, and so that's the opportunity. I, and I think you see like the fact that a moderate political figure like Joe Biden is proposing for him pretty radical solutions. I think yeah, he could go farther actually in some areas um, is a sign that like the stakes are pretty evident to folks. Somebody wants to ask, um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's, you've answered this question, but I'd like to give you a chance to answer it again, because I think this is at the core of your book um, and the importance of your book. Um, why should we defend democracy against authoritarianism? What's really at stake? Isn't democracy just another form of exceptionalism? So I didn't really fully appreciate this until I really embedded myself in Hong Kong. And there's one place in the world, like you can go to Shanghai and you can be like, well, this is pretty attractive. Like people are making money. They have the newest technologies. They kind of consume culture, pop culture of certain sorts, not all of it, some of it. Um, and then I went to Hong Kong and, and, and there's one place in the world too, I guess, maybe if you can Taiwan, but Hong Kong is one place in the world where you could have opt, you can opt in, you can opt out of democracy and you can opt into the kind of capitalist totalitarian technology future. The entire city wanted to opt out, you know, like because what they felt bearing down on them was losing not like freedom as I thought of it as an American. They define freedom in, a, in an interesting way. So I asked them to tell the story of like, well, what's happened? Like, why is this happening? And the story they told was about identity as much as democracy, which is that you used to be able to think, do, say what you thought uh, in Hong Kong and kind of be who you wanted to be. And when the Chinese state started to be more heavy handed the last decade, it starts with like, you know, suddenly certain kind of politics becomes a third rail. Don't touch that. But then it becomes, hey, if you're a young person and you want to get a job, maybe don't post certain things on, on Facebook and social media. But then it became like, don't put certain things in the email. Then it became like, don't subscribe don't go to certain websites because you know they will see that and then you will be denied opportunities in the society um then it becomes um we're going to start teaching certain things in the schools uh, that are basically like a you know what one young person described to me who's not even like an avid protester but she's like they were teaching you to point at a deer and call it a horse you know like whatever their version of the truth is and the, this to me is the, the core point it's not democracy, it's, it's reality and your capacity to define your identity because if, if your choices are being shaped to that degree, then not only what you say is being shaped, what you think is being shaped 
you know, and, and George Orwell really is the master, uh, the prophet of this. And they, they all cited George Orwell to me. They'd all read 1984. They, they are shaping how people think around here. And that's terrifying. And they didn't want any part of it. And, and because, and they said it's about democracy, but it's mostly about identity. Like I want to be who I want to be. I don't want to be shaped into being somebody I don't want to be. And democracy for all of its flaws is like the only system that does at least allow us to be who we want to be. I mean, I asked one of the Hong Kong more active protesters, what is democracy to you? And he said, it's the capacity to be just left alone, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and look, we can argue, and I believe they have, like, we already have some of this here, right? Our society has a social credit system like China, as you and I have discussed. Um, Walk us through that just a little bit so we understand a little bit better what you really mean by that. Because I remember when I first, when you first explained it to me, it was really a mind-opening moment. Well, if you think about it, um, you know, just in terms of, like, there's different components of it. One is related to China, which is that, any American business that does business in China has to shape its views to fit into the Chinese market, which means when's the last time you saw a movie that was critical of the Chinese government? You know, <laughs> um, we, you know, uh, John Cena, the actor from the Fast franchise, just apologized in Mandarin for referring to Taiwan as a country. Um, I tell the story in the book about the Hong Kong, uh, you know, Daryl Moore, the GM of the Rockets, um, called me after he causes flare up by tweeting in support of the Hong Kong protests. So, I mean, that's the Chinese piece, but in America, if you think about what technology and the data economy is already doing here, like your online experience is shaped by algorithms. Your, you know, corporations, Amazon knows what you want to buy before you know it. Um, they, you, you, technology has advanced to a point where you're going to be walking into a store and they're going to, approach you and know what you might want to look for before you know what you want to be looking for, but they're, they're guiding you in that way. Um, and, and so there's a kind of corporate data um, economy here that is, is beginning to shape our, our own choices in the same way that the news we consume, the content we consume is increasingly shaped by algorithms, right? I mean, a majority of Americans get their news on, 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 social media platforms. Well, the Facebook algorithm is selecting, you know, it's interesting when Donald Trump got shut out of Facebook and Twitter, nobody went to his blog. I mean, people could have, that tells you everything you need to know that Facebook and Twitter were mainlining that stuff to people because they knew it generated clicks and they knew it generated ad revenue for them. And they knew that that generated conflict that generated more revenue. People are actually not dying to know what Donald Trump thinks about everything. If they were, they would have been going to this website he started, right? So like we're being shaped by our own version of this. It's not as totalitarian as the Chinese model. It's not the government, you know, making sure, you know, if you click on a website that you're going to go to prison, it's not the the dystopia of what the Uyghurs are going through in Western China. So there's not a, a direct equivalence, but there's commonality in the sense of where technology and capitalism is going is similar in the U.S. and China. And if, if you lose the democracy, you get Hong Kong. Um, By which you mean what? If you lose the democracy, what do you mean? I think, I mean, to me, um, to me, it, it means that, that we all get to be whoever we want to be. And, you know, um, being, being American, that's my subtitle, right, is like, 
whoever the hell you want to be. I, I had a, a, an ambassador, I talked to a former ambassador for the US who said, you know, I used to give these speeches at embassies around the world on 4th of July saying like anybody in the world can be American. And he's like, I really believed that when I said it. I'm not sure, you know, um, that's true anymore. <laughs> Maybe it was never true. But like, what's so radical about America is that idea that like, you can be whoever the hell you want to be, think whatever the hell you want to think, say whatever you want to say. And look, there, there's a left, you know, there, there's some issues on the left on this stuff now too about speech, obviously, right? Um, but um, to me, democracy is both, here, here are the elements of it, you know, that, that capacity to be who you want to be, but also what I was so struck by, and Ed, I, I knew this from reading about it, but when I went out and talked to people, what I was so struck by is that autocracy always has to distort reality. Like facts are never facts in aut autocratic systems because the government, the power structure needs to control in Hong Kong what the perception of the truth is, in Russia what the perception of the truth is, in Hungary what the perception of the truth is. And it's never the truth. To me, democracy is actually living in reality. Like yeah. having a, you know, a, freedom like to make sense of reality, the freedom of, to make sense of reality, to say, to interrogate reality, to, to debate reality. But if you don't have a common accepted objective reality, I don't think you can have democracy. And, and that's what January 6th is all about. Those people are not living in, in reality. You know, so in this very interesting way, I came to find as I journeyed, you know, each system got more autocratic that I interrogated Hungary to Russia to China. By the time you get to China, there is no reality other than the one that is propagated by the government. You have to, you can be the smartest person in the world in China. You can be smarter than you and me, um, but you have to accept a certain reality that is not objective. Like this is the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square does not exist in China. It's wiped off the face of the internet. I met uh, young people who told me that I don't, I didn't know what Tiananmen Square was till I left China and heard about it from other people. They've erased it, like, like the Ministry of Truth in 1984. Like that to me is the opposite of democracy, like that control of what reality is. You end the book with uh, a really, uh, by the way, for everyone who's watching, this has been a very wide ranging conversation. Um, all of this is in the book. This is, this is the book. It's, a, it's the journey of this narrator, Ben Rhodes, um, to to understand what the world's shape is now today and where we are headed. I think it's a book about the future. You have a beautiful image about, about America you, that you thread throughout the book, but that you end really that you end the book with. Um, I found it very inspiring, very moving. Could you tell us a little bit about, about Jackie Robinson? Yeah. You know, you and I talked about this and I, I know I had to convince you at the time, but the, um, you know, I, first of all, I was struck, I, I, I was struck by, and maybe it's because I worked for Barack Obama. Maybe it's because uh, I wrote some of this during the height of the BLM protests. But, you know, I, I couldn't help. Well, I, I actually describe in the book, like part of the book is about being in power to being outside of power and being in. I, I was really angry. The angriest I've ever been in my country was kind of right around that time when I'm sure a lot of the people watching were where you had COVID is off the rails. We can't handle stuff. People are dying. It's clearly going to get worse. The economy shut down. Then George Floyd happens. And I'm walking my kids around and they're, they, my kids are six and four and there's murals of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and people killed by the police. And they're, I'm having to answer these questions, you know, and, and my daughter got off a great line because she said, who are those people? And I said, well, they're black people killed by the police. But I reminded her, you know, um, these may be black people killed by white people, but 
you know, you learned in school about Dr. King and how there's been progress on this stuff. And she said, yeah, but I also learned that Dr. King was killed by a white person. And she's six, right? And just basically punctured the entire mythology of, you know, racial progress. And, and then we're out there one day in the National Guard, which they didn't need to be there. And I was angry that they were there. There was no rioting in my neighborhood. And there's soldiers in the same way that, and this kind of completed my journey from, I used to be in situation room meetings, you know, getting reports about other countries where the soldiers are deployed in the streets. And here these guys are heavily armed. And my daughter's like, why are they here? And I'm like, well, they're the American army and, and they're here to protect us. And they're like, protect us from what? And that question really hit me because how do you answer it, right? Um, and I was so angry. And then the next day I go out and there's a BLM protest and I kind of drift into the crowd and here I am, I'm this guy who was in the White House for eight years, like sitting in the Oval Office every morning. And now I'm just a guy in a mask walking down the street and, and black people obviously are leading this march. And I'm thinking like these people have every reason to be so much more pissed than I am, you know? Um, and yet they give a shit enough that they're out here. Like, wow, you know, like, and it, it made, and I start, you know, the, the last section with the James Baldwin quote, it made me, I've been a tiny little part of this because I worked for Barack Obama and it made me realize the extent to which the American experience is one of, of the structural flaws being improved most often by people of color in this country, but if not people of color, underdogs generally, you know? Um, and so I tell the story at the end about Obama, when he gave a speech on the 50th anniversary of the Selma March, he's like, that is the metaphor of America I want to tell. On the one side, there's these people that are the underdogs and they just want to cross this bridge. And on the other side of this bridge is everything that's wrong with America. You know, the police, like all these white people with clubs, you know, and that's the story of America. And what he asked us to do as speechwriters is, I want you to make the canon of our heroes, the people that have been left out, you know, the, the, the Fannie Lou Hamer and James Baldwin and, and, and just go, go make the list, you know, of, and there are white people too. You know, we had, you know, Thoreau and Emerson and, and it was this joyful experience of kind of creating American identity through these characters who are all underdogs. And I, I chose Jackie Robinson as one of the ones that I felt the most strongly about. And the image I chose for Jackie Robinson in that speech was Jackie Robinson on third base and stealing home and something which he did in the world series in 1955. And I love baseball and I think baseball is so American. And I was like, that's the most American thing I can think of this American game this, the black player, the first one ever, he's on third base, this thing that you're not supposed to be able to do. It's kind of, it's not banned in the rules, but the whole logic of the game suggests you can't steal home. And somehow he does it. And for him to do that, like how many games on how many dirty fields in the South did black people have to play in segregated baseball to develop the kind of genius to figure out how to watch the play, the pitchers wind up and, and get home. And, and it became a metaphor to me of, of defeating supremacy, defeating white supremacy. You know, like I'm going to be so much better and smarter, but I need a little luck too, to make that run home. And to me, that's where we are. That's what America is. Like we are the, the question of like, you know, the world is what it is, right? The world is a place where the history of the world is about supremacy and nationalism. That's the norm, right? Democracy is not the norm. The norm is the opposite of democracy. But America is this kind of bet that every now and then you can, you can steal home, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of what we need now. <laughs> you know, it's, the odds are kind of against us, but like we're on third base and maybe that pitcher is going to get a little lazy because 
They think that, you know, there's no way the guy could rush home and we need to time it and we need to, to make the dash, you know, because that's how progress happens in this country. It's an underdog story, getting one over on, on authority. Uh, self-questioning, self-revealing, absorbing, intelligent case for finding a form of American exceptionalism again. That's the essence of your book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. And, and I, like I said, you know, uh, that America section, I hope you can see that somebody read Homeland Elegies before they wrote it. <laughs> Too kind. <laughs> yeah. This has been amazing. Thank you, Ben. And uh, we've, we had some questions which I wasn't able to get to, but I think we covered a lot of the ground that the questions. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, you and I like get, we have these, people should know we actually have like phone conversations like this, as strange as that sounds. So if we got carried away, that's why. I was keeping an eye out and I think we covered a lot of the same ground. So thank you so much, Ben. And thank you to Elliot. Thanks. Bay. Thanks. Thank you Ayad, for doing this. And Elliot Bay too. Thank you both um, Ben and Ayad, um, And thank you all um, who've been with us. Um, this has been extraordinary. Thanks for tuning into this episode of speakers forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This talk was presented by Elliot Bay book company on June 1st, 2021. It featured author Ben Rhodes in conversation with Ayad Akhtar, discussing Rhodes' new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon.